Take a seat, folks. We'll uh, pray those words in. Uh, Father, we do pray that you would help us to trust you, to know what that looks like, to know how to do that. Uh, More and more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, As Pete was saying and introducing for us, we are in this next bit of the book of James, thinking uh, a a practical book uh, that we've said, uh, a book of wisdom in many ways for how we're to to live as God's people, um, touching on different areas of life. And we're thinking about favoritism, partiality, discrimination, favoritism this morning, um, which in in many ways uh, is, when you think about it, actually operates in all sorts of areas of society. Um, and even in church. And so hopefully it'll help us as we think about this. We're going to think about three things and just try and unpack what James is saying here about it. Um, First, the problem of favoritism and what's going on in the church there that he's writing to. The reasons against favoritism and why he says it's a bad thing. And then the way out of favoritism. Uh, But we'll start with the problem of favoritism. And I'll just read the opening verses again. So uh, James chapter 2, and he just sort of sets the scene for them. He's writing, uh, he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man coming into your meeting uh, is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But to the poor man, say, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he's imagining a setting like this. They're, they're sort of gathering their service where they're coming and in comes somebody. Um, uh, and, and what is kind of going on here? I was trying to kind of capture this in my mind's eye. You can kind of think of it a little bit like this. So there's somebody who comes in who's very wealthy, presents, you know, looks good, uh, nicely dressed. Uh, let's imagine it a little bit like this, kind of this scenario here. So um, you might be able to see at the back there, there's, um, there's a little duck that is walking its way across the backs of a load of turtles that are sitting on this line and is merrily making its way across the I am very important. Uh, I will come to the front, please. Uh, and uh, in comes this, this person who's dressed well, looks good. So, you know, makes his way across on the backs of everyone else to get in a nice seat at the front. Whereas the poor person who comes in looks a little bit like this. Um, No, 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 you stay over there. Uh, You know your place. Uh, That's kind of what he's getting at. Uh, He's got this sense of actually in in their setting, they were showing showing favoritism. And favoritism there, the word literally means kind of receiving the face or judging by looks. Uh, judging by how things look, it's a, a plural, um, so it could be physical looks, it might be um, skin color, it might be how you dress, uh, that sense of, you know, you observe and you make decisions. The gold ring that it talks about would have been an easy marker for the church that uh, James is writing to for being in part of the upper levels of society. You would have recognized that and thought, oh, okay, I know who they are. Uh, the filthy clothes, which um, Jack actually mentioned last week, the, uh, the idea that actually that sort of sense of filthiness, and now it comes through in somebody who you think, oh, I don't like how they look. I don't know, you know, they're not the sort of person that I associate with. And James says in verse 4 that they have discriminated. And it's the same idea from chapter 1. Do you remember we talked about the idea somebody who wavers or is doubting or sort of double-minded Pete sort of imagined being one foot on a boat and one foot on the, on the land and you're sort of you're caught between, sort of with God, sort of judging how the world works. And it's the same thing here. 
because they've, they've set themselves up as taking God's place as judge. So not leaving it to him, but actually sort of taking that when we discriminate, when we, when we show partiality, when we look at someone and decide whether we think they're important or not important, we're taking God's place in judging them. And that's the kind of scenario that he's got going. Now, I'm very aware that, you know, we're in Manchester. Um, we don't particularly here dress up for church much. Um, there are places around the world where this would resonate a great deal, where people do dress up much more and you can easily spot how important people are. Now, we don't, and I realize that we, we have a sort of slightly, you know, anti-authoritarian spirit where we don't particularly want to do that. But believe me, look, we all know the cues, really, don't we? So we might do that. We may not all, we may all dress you know, just pl- plainly, but we all know the cues. You can spot the bag. You can spot the nice shoes. You saw the nice car on the way in. Does somebody doesn't need to tell you too much for you to know, oh, okay, you do that job. You have that kind of status. Oh, I think you have that kind of money. Actually, so we, we play an interesting game in Manchester, don't we? We sort of, we kind of make it seem like we're, you know, we're all on a level, but we all know how it works. We know the cues. We know the, you know the little markers that will tell us where somebody sits. And we're making those kind of judgments all the time. And James says it's not honoring to God. It's not godly. It's not the way that he wants his church to work. And he calls them out on it. The problem of favoritism. But then he sort of, James is quite quick. He moves very quickly into his reasons against favoritism and why this isn't good. And he has three of them, and I'll just take them through as quite quickly. Um, reasons against favoritism. And the first that is that it's, it's not in the mind of God. So um, let me just read verses 5 down to 8 for us. Uh, so listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into courts? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted uh, by the law as lawbreakers. Now, he's got some quick-fire reasons against favoritism. The first being that it's not in the mind of God. When he says, um, God has, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? The whole of Scripture, really, you can find God looks to and elevates the poor, the downtrodden, the marginalized, those who don't have very much. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. Uh, In Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about how not many of you were influential in the church. Not many had money. In fact, the church over its history has often attracted those who were poorer, those who were slaves, those who didn't have a lot of status in society. Um, from its earliest times and really at, at each stage. And, and in many ways, the gospel moves across the world, often attracting and speaking to those who don't have very much. So it's not in the mind of God. He's saying that one of the reasons is this just doesn't fit with God is because it's just not how God works. But then he says, but think also about the track record of the rich. Actually, just look at how the world works when it operates through favoritism. Actually, the, the, be savvy about this. He says, look, they, they exploit you. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of theme running through James, and we'll pick it up again later um, in a couple of chapters' time, where um, a number of them who didn't have very much were oppressed by those who were more wealthy. Um, and it was a really difficult situation for them. And he's saying, look, can't you even see? You, if you fawn over the rich, they're actually the ones who are taking you to court. 
They used wealth to, uh, to kind of, you know, extort or get means out of people. And now that, like, I, I really don't need to do much translation work, I don't think, between, you know, you fast forward 2,000 years to now, and the post office scandal story that has been around, those who have wealth taking people to court, and you kind of see the, the, the same thing operating. In one sense, there's nothing new under the sun. People are human, the human heart is the human heart's. So he says, look, have, be savvy about this. Look at the track record of the rich um, and see how they actually handle things. And then he says, um, another reason, the third reason against favoritism is the heart of the law. The heart of the Old Testament law uh, was love your, the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The sort of basic shorthand summary uh, of, of what God, uh, his instruction for them. It was the, it's called here the royal law, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, it's the, the sort of supreme law. Uh, Jesus' benchmark uh, when he's asked about it in Matthew 22. It's that sense of, um, this is the, here's the, here's the shorthand. The shorthand is love your neighbor as yourself. And if you show favoritism, if you've got a kind of pecking order, People above this line, yeah, you're okay. People below this line, I don't like you. That's not loving your neighbor, says James. It goes to the heart of God's basic instruction for us. And what he does in just, if you're looking at verses 10, uh, 9, 10, 11, just wondering what he's doing there, he's trying to make an argument, which I think would have been sort of much more readily understood in his day. Uh, he's basically saying that the Old Testament law works as a whole. Um, and if you break a part of it, you really break all of it. And what he's trying to do, I think, is to, to explain to people, uh, perhaps somebody who goes, well, okay, James, it's not that serious, is it, to, you know, to show a bit of favoritism? It's not like I'm doing anything terrible. And he says, well, God's law is a whole. It's his instruction to us. He cites a couple of examples of uh, adultery and murder, and he says, that, you know, even if you don't do one but you do the other, you're, you're still a lawbreaker. And he's using an argument just to say, it's the same with favoritism. When we show partiality in that way, we're breaking God's law, his instruction to us. So you might say, oh, it's, 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 surely it's not serious. He says, no, it is serious. And that takes him to verse 12 where he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act, as it were, as though God is in the room. When we meet together and when we in our minds think, oh, I like them, but I don't like them. He says, imagine God was here. What would God say? Who would God move towards? Who would he go and seek out? Would it be the same people that you would? Um, I've been telling, Pete was kind of raising this question of how, you know, we, we, we have our least favorites in, in our minds. And I've, I've been trying to process questions this week of, here are a couple of diagnostic questions to ask yourselves. And um, it's, it's great the Pathfinders are in um, with us. Um, uh, they will leave just at the end uh, of, of when I finished, hopefully not in protest, but they'll, um, they'll leave to go and chat about it. But they're, the, the kind of questions, I think they're questions that we learn as, as children and as teenagers, as their age, and they never quite leave us. But here's a question that I would, I would put to us to, to ponder. Okay, so you, you encounter someone with good looks or with status in some way. Are they instinctively more valuable to know to you, do you think? Do you find, do you, do you find somebody who's good-looking, somebody who you think has got status or power or wealth, you, you kind of think, oh, they would be more valuable to know. And why is that in us? Why do we think that? 
what's operating at that point? Because I suspect at school, you, you know, the, the, we all know this from those days. You guys maybe know this. The people who are good looking, the people who are good at things, people that are attracted to them. And it never really leaves us, I don't think. Or it's, we spend a lifetime trying to unwork it. And we're drawn to people. And I don't, why is that? But then perhaps here's the second question. Uh, if you have good looks, if you have status in some way, if you know you have power or wealth or influence or money in some way, do you realize the opportunity you have to lift others up? You're in the position you are in to go and connect, to move towards people who are perhaps quite different to you. Now, I suspect, you know, I put that there and you're all thinking, oh, no, it's not me, it's not me. Well, I suspect, actually, if you do have good looks, you probably know about it. If you do have status, you probably know about it. If you do have a position or wealth or influence, you probably do know about it. And you're often in a position to move towards people in a way that others aren't. I wonder, have you considered that? We'll think about that in just a bit as we, as we kind of look at what James says towards the end. So there are a couple of questions. I wonder if you might ponder those, reflect on them through this week. Because this thing, often I think it's operating in us. But why is it operating? What's going on in our hearts? So they're the reasons for, against favoritism. He kind of bashes them out. And then we get the way out of favoritism. The, fir- the third thing we're going to think about. He ends with almost two sort of proverb-like sayings, quite pithy little sayings. Um, verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Interesting, kind of thinking about how we interact with others. And then mercy triumphs over judgment. And the mercy here is, um, is human mercy. as is how, how we treat each other. Uh, and it, there's a warning, I think, and an encouragement. And the warning in that sense of Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. It's really, I think, drawing on um, Jesus' teaching, as we've said from James. And there's a, there's a parable that Jesus tells, a story Jesus tells. You might remember it's um, in Matthew 18, if you want to read it later. And it's about a guy who finds that he's in terrible debt. Uh, he owes um, uh, uh, sorry, 10,000 sorry, 10, bags of gold that he owes to someone. As, uh, his master. Uh, he owes this money to him. He can't pay it. Uh, he's going to be destitute. His family are all going to be thrown into prison because they can't pay um, 10,000 bags of gold. So he pleads with the guy and says, oh, can you, is there anything you can do? Can you let me off this incredible debt I've got? So the master says, yes, okay. I'm going to cancel that debt for you and I'll wipe it out. Uh, and he's relieved. He goes on, he leaves. And then he meets uh, a friend of his who owes him 100 coins, 100 silver coins. Uh, and he goes to the man and says, you owe me 100 coins? You must pay me now, or I'm going to throw you into prison. Uh, and when the master hears about it, he says, look, you owed 10,000 bags of gold. It's an extraordinary sum of money that I let go. And now you've got your hands around the neck of this guy, and he only owes you 100 coins. And you see, the mercy that I showed you, you're not able to pass on to someone else. And it's a warning, if you like, it's a, a, a challenge to us to say, actually, well, in many ways, we might read this and think, of course I do this, of course I don't love my neighbor, and of course, actually, I do show partiality, and I need, actually, I need God's grace and forgiveness. Often, I don't pass on the mercy that I've been shown. We've been shown remarkable grace by Jesus as he forgives our sins, and yet then I pick up a pettiness with somebody else, or I judge somebody else for how they look or what I think their life is like. And he says, you're not, can you see, you're not, you're not 
allowing that experience of God's grace and mercy in your life to overflow to someone else. When the guy still got his hands around the neck of the guy who owned him a pittance when he was forgiven so much. Now that's the, the kind of warning, if, if you like, say to, to, to heed that sense in which we've not been shown partiality by God. So why would we then show partiality to others? But there's an encouragement here in, in that too. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Actually, the more that you and I sense and, and, and savor and enjoy and, and, and I guess is real to us, the grace and forgiveness and mercy that we've been shown, the more that we kind of grasp that, the more it will just permeate and overflow into the lives of others that we meet. The more it'll warm your heart to move towards people, the person who has less, the person who you could lift up. Whatever station you're in, you know, you're in all sorts of different situations, but the more you sense that, the more you're able to do that for others. The more it kind of stirs the fire in us, if you like. And there's a, a, a preacher over in the States who talks quite a lot about um, issues that they have in the States. And I find him quite it's an interesting guy. And he, he talks about the way in which love in the scriptures, all the way through, really through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, frequently, consistently puts it in terms of, uh, he, puts, uh, he puts it like this, material investment in your neighbor. Uh, material investment in your neighbor. Love is frequently expressed in material investment in your neighbor. The degree to which you move towards and build up and offer and, and support those around you. And I, th- I find this quite helpful in processing some of this and thinking, well, actually, we can often, it can often be uh, daunting because you think, oh, there's a whole world out there of, of vast needs. But who has God placed you among? Where are you locally? Who, do, who is it you work with? Who are your neighbors? What is the... Who are the people here that you might cross paths with or see or move towards? How can you invest in them? How can you be a part of their lives? James was saying to them, the more that we sense and savor what God has done for us, the more it will overflow. Because Jesus, as we're about to remember, we've, we've set the table uh, to share bread and wine together. Jesus is coming. His death for us is, if you think about it, literally he's saying, I've come to materially invest in you, in my body and my blood. I've, I've come literally to give of myself for you. That's the movement of Jesus to us. And he's saying, as you sense that, would that not cause you to invest in others, to move towards them, not to show that kind of partiality or favoritism? Perhaps as we gather and, uh, and share bread and wine together, as we come, we... You can just reflect on that. We come to a a table where Jesus says, look, anyone's welcome. Come and receive from me. I've I've come to invest in you and then go out into the world and invest in others. Why don't we take a pause? We'll, we'll just, just perhaps reflect, pray. There might be somebody on your heart. Uh, we're going to then be led in prayer together. Uh, Galena is going to come and uh, uh, lead us. So just take a moment uh, and pray, and then we'll pray together.